A few weeks back in episode 130, we spoke with futurist Craig Rispin about the technological changes that are happening in our world right now. Innovation that will dramatically change the way we live, where we live and the buildings we live in. And this week, we're going to further explore this theme and look at the demand side of the equation, how we humans are adjusting our priorities around where and how we live. And not just because technical innovation enables it, but through something deeper, social change. You know, we're now decoupling work from location. And so we don't have to all head into Sydney or Melbourne CBD to hold down one of those corporate jobs. Uh, Or maybe uh, people will still head in uh, once or twice a week. But, you know, then suddenly if you're only commuting twice, um, you can um, put up with the hour and a half. And that does open up those outer rim areas of our capital cities. uh, And it does change the equation. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Anecdotally, we've been hearing of a migration away from urban centres. Sea and tree changes brought about by a stint working from home and a reassessment of what matters to us. Is this the beginning of a groundswell? Will it fizzle out when things get back to normal? What other changes can we expect to see as we head out of lockdown? Today, we're talking with demographer and futurist Mark McCrindle, who you may recall we met with back in episode 76. Well worth going back for a listen to see if some of the things he predicted back then are coming into fruition yet. Mark is an award-winning social researcher, best-selling author and influential thought leader. We're very excited to be discussing the future again today with you, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Oh, delighted to be with you. Thanks, Veronica and Chris. G'day, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on because I absolutely love your work. And I mean, just as a social researcher, um, this kind of COVID experience, I guess, there's been lots of people who have been really affected by it, putting that to one side. How has it been as a social researcher to kind of sit back and just watch things unfold? Well, it has been fascinating uh, because these are rare events and fortunately they are so rare. But the reach of this has been phenomenal uh, in terms of a global nature of, uh, of a pandemic like this. And the depth of its impacts in our lives has been phenomenal as well because it's changed everything from how we shop to where we're learning or working uh, through to our social interactions as well. So it has transformed so much, which does make it a fascinating time for social research is there a time in history where you know as someone who's kind of always looks back to potentially to look forward um where you can see a similar event maybe not a pandemic but something where society's really taken another different direction that we can kind of look as a reference point Yes, the, the the feel that we've got and the ripple impacts through the economy are a little bit like what we get in world wars uh, and a little bit like mm. what we get after Great Depressions, uh, of which, you know, again, fortunately, we have not had in any of our lifetimes. But those older people do, and you look at history as well, uh, do start to see some some similar patterns, you know, that, that it, it'll flow from one country to another, that the recovery is often slower, that is the economic mm. recovery, that it changes sentiment, that it heightens fear, that people bunker down. Uh, but over all of that, you've got the health side of it, uh, even beyond the economic and social side, and so that creates yeah. the extra dimension. And so what, what, if we're going to look at the wars, what were some of the things that, yes, you said longer, but what were some of the other, I mean, I was a, I was a baby boom, I guess, mm, um, mm. was one of the things, but what were some of the other things that you think we potentially might see that was similar to after the wars? Well, in the dark days of the wars and, and you know, the, the recovery time after, we did see things like uh, fear and sentiment uh under challenge. We saw people reprioritize their lives and not worry as much about just climbing (laughs) that ladder because more important things were at the fore like survival and family and safety. And those values did 
get a reprioritization as well. You know, remember um, in the 1930s, uh, the 20s and 30s, it was party time and the 19, late 30s and 40s, suddenly things got very serious. And, uh, and so it did give that reprioritization and it did create long-term values in that generation we call the greatest generation, uh, values like financial conservatism and a focus on the long term and being mm. prepared to save and, and, and work hard and all of that created them to be the greatest generation and to go on to produce what they produce. So I think that similarly with the younger generation of today, they will have a fortitude, a resilience and a character forged in this time that will serve them well mm. for the rest of their lives. And you could argue that we were due for it. I mean, <laughs> um, I know that we've what had over thirty years without a recession in Australia, and obviously in Australia we've we really survived or, or dodged a bullet, I guess, at the post GFC hardship that a lot of other countries experienced. Um, you know, our consumerism has been up. Uh, you know, it's it, we've had we've had a good life. It's been fun, and the climate suffering as a consequence of that. So you, I guess you could argue that this is something that. We really needed to have, um, but I guess, do we think, or do you think, based on your research, that this is still enough of a shock, and that we will change our sort of our attitudes or our thought processes permanently, or at least for a generation? Or do you think maybe we're a little bit short term, a little bit too short term, and we'll mm. bounce back relatively quickly? Well, I think some things will return to how they were, but a lot won't because of the impacts of it and the extended nature of it. It hasn't just been a day event, you know, it hasn't just been a blip, it's been extended and with some second waves and the like will roll on and other countries are are going through it at a different stage. So it, it has been global in its impact. And while the older generation have been through recessions and cycles before, not the younger ones, and, you know, the age at which you're exposed to a massive social event Mm. like this determines how embedded it becomes in your psyche. And so I think that it will change the younger generation for the good. You know, think about a lot of the labels that were pinned on the millennials prior to this. You know, they're the the selfie (laughs) generation. They're they're fickle. You know, they're just living for today. Well, not anymore. You know, and it has given them uh, a real reality check that actually stock markets go up, but they also go down. Volatility is something of a new normal. Uh, Jobs aren't guaranteed, you know, hang on to a job. Job security matters. Savings are important for a rainy day. All of those timeless values have been reinstilled for this generation. It's funny you say that about Gen Y. If you think about, are you saying that potentially generations that are a bit older, Gen X, baby boomer, et cetera, um, would potentially more likely go back to how things were, but the younger generation of really, they kind of think about it a lot more deeply and potentially get affected a lot more. Would you say that or is, is that not right? That's exactly right, Chris. Um, we've surveyed twice now through COVID on the way in and and just in the last few weeks on the way out. And uh, anxiety was the number one uh, sentiment across Australians, but it was far higher in its precedence mm. in the younger generation, those in their 20s, than, than the older generations. Again, because the older generations have some bigger context, some broader life experience, mm. and they say, you know what, this too will pass. The younger generations, this has been a deeper shock. Uh, if we look at the economic impacts, it's generation Y that say that it has had the biggest impact of, on them. 37% yeah. say, say the economic shocks have been have been significant. Whereas, you know, the older generations, again, they've got a little bit more economic resilience and um, being uh, having a wage cut or some hours cut for a while, they feel mm. that they will bounce back. On the mental health side, it's even been bigger with the Gen Zs, those in their teenage and early 20s, because wow. the isolation, the loneliness, the, the social impacts upon them uh, at their young age have been significant indeed. What's, what year is Gen Z that they start? How, what's the youngest Gen Z at the moment? They were, the, the youngest was born in 2009. So, you know, they're Nine, just moving been. into their teenage years, yeah. And so that generation, because it's interesting to think through because time moves pretty fast, mm. right? So, um, you know, Gen Y weren't seen as the driving force behind the labour market, the property market, but they pretty quickly got there. Um, what are some of the things you think long-term they're going to be impacted on and you know do you think they'll they'll reassess everything a little bit because they've kind of didn't go to school and etc yeah definitely and i think that's where you know this has been a great 
um, a reality for them. No one would wish uh, a time like this, but just like we have our winters season wise, you know, you need your winters mm. along with your summers because it does, you, you, you adjust, you know, you, you, it builds a bit of resilience. And I think that's going to be the case for them. Uh, they have seen digital transformation. In fact, it's ushered digital transformation in for all of us. But yeah. you know, at such a young age, suddenly they realize, well, actually, we can learn from home. And they've seen parents working from home. And they've seen the ability to adapt and collaborate even in online environments, build the social yeah. connectivity that way. They've seen that we can bounce back from this. They see that, again, you know, jobs uh, and the security of that does matter. And I think that all of that um, will forge this, this, this character in them, will help them be adaptable, nimble, agile, because you have to be in this era. And they, through the technology, will bring solutions in all of this. You know, we're not going to want to do as much push buttons in technology in, in the future, you know, in shared spaces or in lifts. So gesture mm. control will come around. We're seeing more contactless pay. And and the point is that, that this generation that are digitally savvy will bring about innovations in a post-COVID world that we will all benefit from. You mentioned earlier, Mark, that you um, surveyed uh, Gen Y in particular, sort of mm. moving into this, um, and you've you've been surveying them along the way. I'm gathering, mm. and you said that the anxiety was was very um, prevalent in that uh, generation. Is that lessening because they're starting to see that they can actually um, digitally or do things di- differently and digitally, or is it is it fairly static? It is changing. And when we're in the dark days in March, uh, anxiety was the number one sentiment for all Australians. Hopeful Mm. was a distant fifth. I'm happy to say now that hopeful is the number one um, attitude for the older generations. The younger ones still have anxiety and then um, hopeful. That is because there's a sense of frustration and uncertainty about not the physical impacts of this, but the economic impacts, the job pathway, future study opportunities. You know, they've got the world before them. They're at the point of life where uh, the big worries are, should I choose this job or that job? Or, you know, I've got three (laughs) courses I could possibly do. This changed all of that. Uh, Now, we're in a blessed place as a nation where the the number one impact we're talking about are uh, economic impacts or social impacts, not health impacts. And we've got to keep that in mind. That's the least of the worries. Only 13% said that that's a concern for them far higher with the other impacts but nonetheless those other impacts are significant and will be long lasting for the various generations and have you seen i guess like the longer term impacts i think the trend that you know the different directions or the different tracks that we take as a society you know things like migration do you see you know what have you is there any research that you've seen or any that kind of can give us an idea whether it'll go back to like it was um, whether it be dramatically reduced long term or whether it actually even be higher. Well, it's having impacts now and we'll see it over the next year when the demographic data, the population data comes out, comes out quarterly. But it's because we are so reliant, you know, two thirds of our population growth is normally from net migration. It's going to have a dent on our population growth. It's going to slow that down. That'll be particularly evident in places like Sydney, which has really been relying on migration for its growth. In fact, Sydney, if we just yeah. think within Australia, loses more people to other parts of Australia than it gains. So it's been, Sydney actually goes backwards if we look at the internal side, but it's yeah. bolstered through overseas migration. And it, and we're moving from now one quarter into the second quarter of that stoppage of, of that migration. So it will have impacts. And as that demand is a bit slower, it does have uh, flow on impacts around pricing and other things of property. Um, but, uh, but, I think in the long term, you know, Australia remains a key destination for migration. In fact, how we have handled COVID, the fact that we're talking about economic, not physical health impacts, tells us that we have managed this extremely well. We see that. This has been global brand opportunity for every country to match themselves against another and see how well they flatten the curve. Well, here we smash that curve uh, down mm-hmm. flat. Um, and yeah, there's a bit to go yet. We'll see where it flows out. But we have done so much better than almost every other nation. And that is a great positive in the global brand side of it. And this will therefore remain a key destination country. So migration will come back, uh, but it might take a couple of years before those borders fully open towards that. A big part of that is the private schooling, sort of, um, you know, high school, sort of tertiary education. Um, 
you know, migration coming to Australia. I mean, has there been a lot of, do we become more desirable? I know we're potentially slipping, you know, in desirability around the world, but do we become more desirable because the health isn't a concern, say, to their parents sending their kids here as much? Um, you know, do you think mm. longer term with universities and things like that, that that potential will get supercharged after something like this? Oh, that's right, Chris. You know, what parents look for when it comes to sending their children who, you know, live here, you know, year after year during their school or high school or, or university period uh, is they want safety and they want economic stability and they want a possible pathway for a future for their children as well. And Australia mm. ticks all of those boxes. The other big migration category is skilled visas. And yeah. uh, we're going to, you know, it's going to take us a while to get the education back on here. And it's going to take a while to get the skilled visas back because we are dealing with not quite double digit unemployment here locally, but yeah. edging towards it. And the government is not going to have any great incentive to bring workers in from overseas when we've got our own employment challenges here. So we, it, it, it is, we're talking years, not, not months before we see the migration numbers get back to close to what they were. And talking about education, I mean, obviously recently there's been a change to uh, the fee structures around our, our tertiary education and with an emphasis to try to get more students entering into the professional or the, the degrees that lead to professions or to actually employment. Uh, it's sort of quite interesting, isn't it? Um and obviously the big furor is around the increase of the cost of humanities degrees of the inference being it's not as easy to get a job once you've got one of those degrees. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the government is always using signals of various forms to try to encourage people into certain areas, you know, because we do have some shortages in, in key areas. I mean, probably the area where we have a biggest shortage is not just in those STEM areas around engineering and maths, but in the, the actual skills. Uh, forget uni, you know, it's the skills of the trades and the apprenticeships where we're running short because, mm. you know, not everything can be digitally solved. Not every job can be filled by um, offshoring to another place. We need local um, young people to be skilled up in these in these trades. And and so I think the vocational education system needs a bit of focus and there's, there's more attention being placed on that. But as for the, the, the shifts in degrees, I mean, I can understand that the government response that, you know, some of these generalist degrees don't lead to a direct pathway. But the, the other mm. side is that the whole employment world is changing and so yeah. much is learnt on the job anyway. In fact, so many jobs are changing year by year, you couldn't possibly be trained up for it in a university <laughs> degree, yeah. which which degree is not a generalist degree these days, you know, engineering side, yeah. they're generalist as well. So I think you know, university study is great because it gives broad knowledge. It, it gives some some um, experience in preparing, in, in assignments, in in, in yeah. being well read, in in being uh, in setting goals and, and achieving those. Um, but other than that, you know, most of the meaningful contributions we make in our career, those skills are learned on the job. I guess, um, yeah. I mean, study is part of our little get our economy booming um, around tourism you know, people coming from overseas here, but also internal tourism, you know, us travelling within the country. Mm. What's your thoughts on how that'll bounce back? Because, you know, there's, I guess a little bit of a myth that we really need the overseas tourism when potentially a lot of it's driven by internal. Well, that's right. And, you know, Aussies love this nation, you know, and we love to explore our backyard. And uh, and we've had a long tradition of that. Now, with cheap flights over the last 20 years, we have oh, yeah. seen us, <laughs> us head overseas more. But, you know, there is so much of our own continent to explore. And, and hey, you know, it's harder to fly out of Australia now. Great. Australians don't need too much of an incentive to, to do the big lap or to, uh, to pack mm. the tent or the caravan and, and go exploring. We're also really well set up now with sophisticated infrastructure for, for some, some higher level internal travel. You know, it's not just the mm. motels or the caravans. Now there's this quality, uh, not only accommodation, but tourism options within this nation. And, and I think we, we will see a bit more of a resurgence of local tourism, of, of seeing our own nation, and, and not just, you know, in that retirement grey nomad space. And we, we need the grey nomads to, to pack up and, and do those six-month trips. But uh, but just all of us, you know, travelling a bit more locally and seeing some of these globally renowned regions, you know, in our state or the one next door and, uh, and really exploring our own country. 
Which sort of leads to how do we get around because obviously I was actually a bit surprised the other day I got online just to see how much it costs to fly to Melbourne. Not that we'll be flying to Melbourne because as we record this, I think they're, they're potentially mm-hmm. facing another lockdown. Um, but I was actually quite surprised that they weren't really expensive. I was expecting that, uh, you know, flights would be so much more expensive, but I guess they're trying to entice people to fly again. But, um, you know, we do have a bit of a, we've got a rail network that does go around the country. However, it doesn't go to a lot of places, does it? And it's not that fast. And they're all, they're re- we're relying on our cars. I mean, do you see or is there, do you, do you have any faith that there's going to be a more effective rail network in this country? There's been a lot of uh, work done in recent years on fast rail and uh, high speed rail nationally. And, and there's been mm-hmm. some government funding towards some pretty significant uh, research projects in that space. Now, it's in feasibility stage. We, we haven't actually seen any any fast rail uh, projects start, but but that is something that's being seriously considered. I know that, um, you know, we've had this long fascination in Australia with fast rail and, and every mm. 10 years it comes up again. <laughs> but the facts are, are, are undeniable. That is that the Sydney to Melbourne corridor is the, the second or third busiest air corridor in the world. Uh, yeah. You've got two cities of more than 5 million people. And if we did have some fast rail as an alternative to flight, that would really open things up. And importantly, not just provide a connection between these two hubs, but open up the the, the, the incredible regional areas in between our two cities and from there maybe to Canberra and, and of course, southeast Queensland joining the loop. And and I think we we have such viability for high speed rail in Australia. We've just got to have the, the vision to make it happen. Because once, of course, once we do that, it does take away that heavy reliance on Sydney and Melbourne in particular. So you know, we could see that facilitating a real change in 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 the way or where people live, right? Exactly right. And that's the goal of high-speed rail is not that it just provides another corridor, another way to get from one city to another. But unlike flight, you've got these stops along the way. And so suddenly, if you've got an area like, you know, an Albury-Wodonga, you know, in between the two cities, uh, which turns out to be you know, an hour now from from Melbourne, uh, because of its connections with high speed rail. Suddenly, that changes things. It's 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 the equivalent of an outer suburb uh, of Melbourne mm. um, in terms of that time, and and so we're we're decoupling location, uh, and and we're more thinking about time from one place to the other. That's what high speed rail does: opens up our internal areas, empowers the regions, creates a lot of jobs, and gives that livability that we look for. You know, a little bit of space, uh, but gives the connectivity that we do need. So I think the other benefit is, um, you know, that needs that is employment. You know, you can, if you want to build a kind of second city or a third city, you know, a lot of people in the past thought I wouldn't move regionally because if I lose my job in the city, um, I'll then have to try to get another job in the city and that's going to be hard or I'm going to have to get something locally and there's no jobs. And so employment prospects is one of the things that stopped people, you know, leaving the city. Mm. But I guess this sort of work from home, movement or you know work from anywhere really you don't have to be at home mm. how do you think this is going to change long term has this kind of been the catalyst that's really going to really send it on a different track exactly right chris i think that's just a fascinating insight that you know we're now decoupling work from location and so we don't have to all head into Sydney or Melbourne CBD to hold down one of those corporate jobs. Uh, or maybe uh, people will still head in uh, once or twice a week. But, you know, then yeah. suddenly if you're only commuting twice, um, you can um, put up with the hour and a half. And that does open up those outer rim areas of our capital cities. Uh, and it does change the equation. And if we think about some of these regional hubs that might grow, they become more appealable uh, mm. because of their location. And also uh, they might grow and then you get that that, that economy mm. of scale and they become their own employment hub, you know, in their own right. So uh, I think the new working from home arrangements and studying from home uh, have opened up a, a new outlook, a new way of viewing uh, where we live. Yeah, so in Melbourne, you know, what are the, some of the, areas that you think like the Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, like these are the, 
the areas that have kind of been waiting for something like this to kind of get people to move there, the confidence? They have, and, you know, each of those cities, as you, you just rattle them off there, we're talking, you know, six figures now, Ballarat and Bendigo have, have both mm. passed the 100,000 mark, Geelong's, you know, quarter of a million. So pretty sizable already and just an hour from or, or so uh, from Melbourne. So, you know, mm. pretty good. But but to do the daily commute maybe a little bit of a haul, but suddenly – um, in a work-from-home environment, they become very appealing indeed. Of course, the cost price of, of living there is a lot lower um, and the appeal of the regions is greater than suddenly, you know, the, the, the uh, highly densified Melbourne living. The other thing that's come about through all this COVID, just in terms of broadening our, our mindset around where we live and lifestyle is yeah. that the strengths of the CBD, that it was close to employment, that it was walkable communities and the cafe downstairs and community all around you turned mm. out to be a weakness when we were trying to self-isolate <laughs> yeah, and exactly. socially distant. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, those outer areas you know, where you've got the backyard, where you've got the front door, where you're not bumping into people all the time, uh, which was a challenge because we felt a little bit out of it all, um, turned out to be a strength. So we are going to see a boom towards the detached above just the, the the apartment we're going to see people rediscover yeah. the benefit of a backyard and a bit of space yeah. and maybe extra rooms because now one of them set up as a, a study yeah. and another set up for a, a work from home environment and we, we're going to see people recognize that a longer distance from the cbd is not necessarily a, a negative um, as we rearrange our work environment so you think it'll become a space versus location uh, debate? This is quite often <laughs> we yeah. find this when we're helping people buy their property, uh, buy a home anyway. That it, there's always this idea of the the more house they get or the bigger apartment they get, typically it, to make it affordable, they have to move further out. So will this then make those bigger places more expensive? Well, it'll certainly uh, give more benefit to to those places which were marked down because they were so far away, yeah. you know, because of the commute. So, so it, it does level it up a bit more. And, and and you know, not everyone is going to be working from home. Not everyone can, and a lot of people do need yeah. that location. And we will bounce back from this this sentiment of of worry about social isolation. And uh, it, it might be some months, it might be a couple of years, but but we will get back. To and I think it's important we do get back to the walkable communities and the benefits of some densified living and the the, the fact that the, the environmental footprint is less that the social connection is greater and, and just that we can get by without you know the car and, and walk around we will get back to some of that but in, in the medium term it, it's certainly shown the benefit that some had written off of the detached home the four bedroom place and um, yeah and and a bit of place with some green space out the back. So the tiny house moving movement's dead in your view? <laughs> well, I'm sure all of us who worked from home and had kids at home found yeah. that even the place we did have was probably a bit squishy, you know, everyone underfoot. Yes. It was a challenging few months. And if we have yeah. that to return, which we may well, you know, and certainly having people working from home, one or two people might become more of the norm. Uh, we, we did appreciate the extra space and those extra rooms. We, we suddenly found a, a useful, not just to store junk, uh, but to actually work or study from there. And, and, and I think that is the benefit um, of, of a larger place. And, and it's not just about the detached home. I mean, it's, it's the three or four bedroom units, which are now viable options as well. More rooms are better than less if we're going to have flexibility around using that for work or study. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. In your research, have you sort of um, uncovered, I guess, pressure on the family unit? I think, uh, you know, anecdotally I've heard stories of, um, you know, a lot of inquiries uh, for counselling, for uh, divorce lawyers, um, relationship breaks downs because of uh, being forced to isolate. Uh, you know, are you seeing sort of a, any sort of, I guess, significant issues in that area? 
We did track that and we asked how it's been in the household. And yes, we, we found that one in five, just under one in five, said that there has been increased tensions in their household because you know we're there we were all there 24 7 for a while and having to you know give a little as as someone's on a zoom call and and it's interfering with our quiet space that was there but interestingly and this is the research finding that more than that and it may even be the same group just over one in five said that it strengthened relationships within their household we had more time together more time and we spent a day on screens in the work or in the study, the last thing we wanted to do in our recreation time is, is get in front of a TV. <laughs> yes. so we actually, people were dusting off jigsaw puzzles and family game sites made to come back and backyard cricket uh, was suddenly back on. We found the old soccer ball there. Uh, I think it had a positive impact. And, you know, yeah. definitely when we're forced to spend more time together and, and, and you know, you had, you had adult children returning back to the family unit. Those kids that were working interstate came back. It was, it was you know, a really different era. Uh, but, but, but amidst all of that, it forced us together. And yes, there might have been some increased tensions, but that's how relationships grow. We've got to resolve it. It forced us into it and it built relationships through it. So I actually see that it, and I think it'll be shown to have had a stronger impact on our social relationships uh, than even the, the, the negative tension that it created. You're a very optimistic fellow to, th- to even suggest that it might be the same um, uh, yes. one-fifth <laughs> that have made, that has made them stronger. Um, but, you know, obviously divorce is, uh, is good for, for real estate transactions, and I say good, I'm using the, the, <laughs> the word advisedly, but, uh, you know, relationships uh, breaks down, breakdowns mean that houses and apartments need to, need to change hands. Um, so that brings some energy into the market. Some, <laughs> I guess you could describe it as that. But I'm interested too, you did touch on there, you said that um, adult children moving home and certainly that's been an impact on the rental market and the share house market. Have you got any insights to add into that? I mean, mm. will that be, you know, is that going to be a fundamental shift in the way or how long people stay with their parents for argument's sake? Do you see that mm. as permanent or that's sort of more sitting around the fact that Gen Z and Gen Y have been more impacted financially, and um, and also that I guess they didn't they could leave their rentals. Well, it, it has been significant, and it's already now been a few months since uh, people got out while they could out of that state or out of that city came back to the family unit and, you know, borders are still shut and people aren't able to get back to maybe what they had prior. What we saw, and we tracked this demographically, is that during the COVID time, 3 million Australians changed their housing arrangements with with either adult parents moving in or maybe it was the adult kids coming back to the family hub. Uh, Maybe it was people who had a a rental letting that go and uh, and moving back with others. A lot of those group households were abandoned as uh, they didn't need to study or work in that area, so they headed back to the parental hub. And so that's a massive internal migration. Three million people either grew their household or left their household and went back to parents or or, or adult children. And, uh, And we're largely still in that situation. And with, you know, Cash flow tight and uncertainty around employment, people are not going to rush out back to renew that lease or to get back into it. Um, And now a lot of people are able to to work remotely from where they once were. And so, again, they don't need to rush back to where they were. So so it has readjusted. It's increased the number of people per household uh, above what we're expecting. And the ripples of that will continue to flow through the property market. And is, has that been decreasing, like that numbers per household in the census sort of thing? Has that been decreasing, you know, consistently over many years? And this is kind of then taking it in a different direction a little bit? Exactly, Chris. It's been decreasing for 100 years. In the 1911 <laughs> census, we uh-huh. had we had three uh, more than 3.5 people per household. We got yeah. down to 2.5 people per household in, in, in the 2011 census, and it's gone up to 2.6 people. So for the first wow. time in a century, it's actually gone up, not down. Uh, and yeah. that is that is not because there was an increase in the birth numbers. It's it's mm. because there's been an increase in the number of people staying at home. Maybe kids staying home longer. Maybe people returning home, and uh, and maybe adult parents doing what they do in in a lot of the world, in the Asian world, in the Mediterranean regions, where we look after our older parents. We don't just um, send them off to an age yeah. facility. And and we're seeing a bit more of that. You know, a generation that are well, they're younger, longer, and they don't want to or need to rush off to retirement living. And so they're living in the parental hub or in the family unit a bit later in life as well. 
Especially when young kids are coming along, um, you know, free babysitting, et cetera, in the house. <laughs> oh, there's um, a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, is this really, you know, the whole work from home, opening up regional hubs, um, you know, because of the housing affordability in this is, uh, issue in the city, um, and, you know, that is one of the biggest concerns of Gen Y, without a doubt. Mm. So if they can solve that problem by leaving, um, is this conversation really around kind of the, what will the Gen Ys do after this corona because I think, you know, will the Gen Xs kind of want to just really stay in the city because they've already kind of embedded with their roots and their friends. Maybe the baby boomers don't want to leave because their kids haven't left. Um, so is it really what the Gen Ys decide after this um, that will determine whether, you know, the regional hubs really grow? Mm, absolutely. You know, those Gen Ys are the key to the future population profile of our nation because they're moving into the family forming years uh, they are the ones that are open to change they haven't as you said put their roots down deeply they've delayed buying their own places and everything is an option particularly post-covid and yeah. many of them having reprioritized are saying you know do i want to be on that crazy work life that i was on that was perhaps not long-term sustainable or maybe yeah. if i think about a regional area if i do the tree change i can like cut i can actually afford a place i can cut down on what would have been the the intensity of the hours required yes i might take a pay cut working in the regions but you know what i might um, be better off overall after housing costs and many are doing those figures and and are making the change and this was on pre-COVID as well, of course. That's why, you know, as I said, Sydney loses more people to the regions than it gains because Aussies are voting out of the cities. And these are young Aussies as well um, to the regions. You know, these regions, we're not talking about cities of 20,000 people, you know, who, um, the Gold Coast, our sixth largest city, you know, nearly 700,000 people. And we mentioned Geelong yeah. and, uh, and the like. So there's been a bit of the the sea change that Aussies have always loved, but there's increasingly that tree change as well where they're moving to the internal cities. I mean, have a look at um, at the growth of Hobart over this last five years. You know, as people get a bit of lifestyle, they still have a yeah. bit of a city feel, but but a city of 230,000, not 5.3 million, you know, and, uh, and, and it's a different lifestyle that you get in some of the, the cities outside of uh, the East Coast. But with Hobart, you keep hearing sort of stories that it's more that's where retirees go and all the young, the youngsters, you know, go to the mainland. Are you saying that actually Gen Ys are moving to Hobart and, and actually setting up home there rather than in a main city on the mainland? It's slowly starting to change. Hobart or Tasmania generally does have mm. uh, one of the oldest profiles in Australia, as does you know, South Australia. Uh, uh, but it is starting to change. There's a vibrancy, there's a vibe, there's a uh, an arts culture and, you know, a renewed lifestyle culture that young people are going for. And again, the affordability is such. That's why we've seen property prices rise there, even above some of the other capitals in the last few years. And the population, which was very static in Tassie, has been going up. But, but you know, Tassie and, and the shift from the mainland to Hobart is, is, is a bit of a shift. Um, but you're getting a lot of the changes within one own state so you know you're getting sydney side has moved to newcastle or, or, or yeah. Wollongong. you know you're getting the the melbourneites moved to geelong or or, or, yeah. or ballarat and uh, bendigo and, and it's it's that it's that relocation move from a capital city to not just a regional town but to another city a large city in itself uh yeah. but, but one that's got a bit more lifestyle and affordability than the one they're leaving and do we do we look to other countries, say the US as being another modern country, or maybe you know a lot of the European countries where they've got these sort of smaller cities in between the bigger cities and and, and regional um, or uh, what they call it provincial towns mm. um, that that are close to big employee um, employers, et cetera, et cetera. Do we do we look to that as being a model for how it could work, or is this is something that's a bit unique to Australia in terms of how we're going about it? We are starting to think that way. That That's right. I mean, you know, you look at how our population has settled and we've got two thirds of us living in our top five cities. You know, you've got, you've got a fifth of us, the whole nation lives in Sydney and another one in five lives in Melbourne. You know, we're very capital city concentrated. And we've almost forgot about all these other cities and, and you know, this massive landmass and uh, and the options that are available. And we are starting to change that view. We're seeing some of these regional areas grow at rates faster than the capitals. Geelong 
uh, in percentage growth rate terms, has been the fastest growing area in Australia now for a few years straight, growing faster than Melbourne and, and Sydney. So, so the second tier, as is sometimes called, the, the, the second largest um, cities in our capitals, uh, in, in our um, in our states uh, outside of the capitals are those that are starting to grow fast because they still have the scale. You still get the cafe culture and the lifestyle you want, uh, but the affordability is better. The lifestyle arguably is better. And yeah. um, and, and now with being able to work from them, solving the employment situation, uh, they're going to have this extra boost as well. well that's why- like it, it's like the, you know, I guess as a, why would you do it? Well, you know, a lifestyle, affordability, um, cheaper cost of living, um, can still get employment, etc. But a lot of people still haven't had the, not guts, but still haven't had that, you know, they go for that easy option. Let's just buy the house in the inner ring or the mm. middle ring or the outer mm. ring rather than making that big sort of change. Um, and I guess that a lot of people think, well, is there going to be people like me there? You know, is the community as strong? But have you, you know, so it's kind of a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? Like as soon as people do move there, then people go, actually, there are people like me and people have done what I want to do. Do you think that's what we just need is the, to start growing and people to start moving there en masse and then people will start to kind of follow like sheep. Well, exactly right. And and we're starting to see that diversity of generations in the profile of these areas. You know, have a look at what these these cities have done. They've set up universities in all of these ones mm. that we're mentioning and even even the smaller ones like like um, uh, Mildura and, uh, yeah. and Wagga Wagga you know there's there's universities there there's there's independent schools for parents who want that option yeah, you've, you've got the the infrastructure now with whether it be NBN and, and Wi-Fi opportunities through to again you know the cafe and the hospitality culture that doesn't mean at 7 p.m. you can't get a meal. It's all yeah. changed. And and young people have recognised that. Maybe you know us older um, exes or boomers still have the stereotypes of what regional living is like, but it has changed. And uh, mm. and there's a vibrancy there that young families are recognising and, and they're saying, you know, maybe I ought to forget about this hour and a half commute from the outer rim to the, the city uh, <laughs> in the capital and exchange for a bit of lifestyle. And, and again, you know, COVID's uh, accelerating some of that shift. I, I always judge a place on the availability of coffee and mm. um, and the quality of that coffee. I was just down the south coast a, a couple of weeks ago when we were driving back very early in the morning, Monday morning, and um, we came into Berry at about 6.30 a.m. Mm. And I thought, oh, desperately need a coffee and I was wondering what sort of compromises I have to make. I wish I could remember <laughs> the name of this place, but we pulled up this groovy little hipster guy. <laughs> he wasn't that little actually. Groovy hipster, hipster dude um, with this the best coffee I've ever had. Mm, wow. <laughs> I know yeah. Barry's a little yeah. bit Sydney, Sydney yeah. down the south coast, yeah. but oh my god, it was it was way surpassed my expectations. Yeah. So. I reckon that's um, Queen Street uh, Cafe or Queen Street Restaurant or whatever it's called. It, it so. is on Queen Street, yeah. but it's not that yeah. called that. I can't remember what it's called. It's a tiny. It's a hole in the wall, basically. Yeah, but it's a little tiny. Yeah, it's a tiny shop front. <laughs> but um, I, it was a big, very big smile on my face. I have to say, <laughs> and that would encourage me to move to a country town if I knew that I could get, co- get coffee of that quality. And I you think buy a good coffee machine now for eight hundred dollars. So uh, <laughs> I think you know, not being able to go out and go to cafes. I'm sure a lot of people have, you know. You know, it's the beans. Bread. It's not just the way it's made. It's the beans. Well, exactly, the beans. and and it's the experience. And I think I think that's emblematic of what we're seeing in these regions now. You know, the lifestyle and uh, and and this is right across the place. I mean, you know, Newcastle has reinvented itself as a as a place to go. Uh, Wollongong, you know, you get you get the good coffee coffees and the and the lifestyle. And, and Geelong has been on the journey, and uh, and it's not an industrial city that we used to know as well. So so we've had the the resurgence of these places and the the young younger generations have recognised it and um, and it is something of the future settlement patterns of this nation. Mark, you mentioned Geelong and you did say it's the fastest growing um, city in Australia. Mm. Um, what is it specifically about Geelong that has created that? Mm. And keep in mind, it was only a couple of years ago that you know, the forecasts were pretty yeah. dire for that city with the shutting Ford down closed. of Ford. Exactly. Yeah. And unemployment. And, you know, it's had a share of, of social problems and, and youth unemployment. But but what a yeah. transformation. And and firstly, it's that it is a satellite city. You know, it's it's within yeah. an hour or so of, of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and when a city hits 5 million like Melbourne has, um, you know, it's obviously got a very large footprint 
And people say, well, actually, you know what? I'm probably living closer to Geelong than I am to Melbourne, even though I'm officially in Melbourne. Or I'm, yes. you know, maybe I'll just make that shift. I won't have to worry about the commute. And houses are, you know, take 30% off the price at least. And mm. and that's that's part of it. You know, people have recognized that these uh, these regional or satellite cities also are gateways to new opportunities. You think about Geelong and, and suddenly the Great Ocean Road is 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 a little, you know, Saturday morning drive. Yeah. Um, and so, and of course, with that growth, with the new generations has come the vibrancy around the lifestyle. A place like Geelong is well established with now a couple of universities and, mm. and again, the, um, the schooling. schooling and all of the options that young families look for. Uh, so, mm. so yeah, and we, we've again changed our our perceptions indeed the cities have reinvented uh from the industrial ones that some of these coastal cities used to be like newcastle and wollongong as well um to these these family-friendly uh livability cities and uh and that's been that change has been recognized by the next generation have you got any i mean i guess this is a work from home thing it's going to be one of these things where we don't know whether companies will you know bite the bullet and have to offer flexible working terms because they can't attract top talent because mm. all their competitors offer work from home. And if consumers decide that two days or three days from home and two, three days in the city is the optimal thing that they want, the workers, mm. then the employers will have to offer it. And then you get this real shift because it's not the employers driving it, it's the employees. And I, mm. it's just, we're not, I guess we're not sure how employers will kind of really set their, their rules around how their, their staff have to come to the office. Um, and so I guess it's going to be really interesting to track that. But mm. what are some of the other trends that you, as a social researcher that probably, you know, spends every minute thinking about these things, um, that you're really watching after COVID that not many other people, you just think that's quite fascinating to you in particular? Well, making sure that we continue to not just be good at what we do, but be agile to adjust what we do for the future you know i think this has shown us all that the future is not a place that we're headed it's not an inevitable destination it's something we're shaping uh Mm -hmm. it's it's created not inherited and and we do have our destiny in our hands in that sense and so it's those companies that actually uh can can adapt um and we've seen it through COVID. you know change their delivery methods, maybe even retool to create new products or services in such a time. They are the ones that actually have thrived uh, even through the chaos that has been COVID. So it's that adaptability that is so key. It's making sure when we come to employ people, we look at people who, who aren't just going to get a job done, but who are leaders and self-managed in their own right so that they can be independent uh, because that's the future. It's, it's going to be workers who are uh, off-site who are working from home or, 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 or diverse in terms of where they're going to work and they'll need to self-manage and uh, and be, be if you like, entrepreneurial in thought and, and leaders in, in mindset. Mm. So we're seeing changes to how we work, to, to what organisations need to do, to, to who we look at in terms of employment and that that agility is is going to be key. Um, and, and, of course, it's changing our attitudes to not just where we live, as we discussed, or where we work, but even how we shop. And uh, and so we've seen us yeah, adapt to that whole thing. And and probably what this has made us really aware of is that while there have been trends coming thick and fast, um, really over the last 20 years, uh, faster trends, this has highlighted a new reality of continuous volatility where where the changes come hard on the heels of each other. They're global in their, in their nature. And, yeah. uh, and therefore, we, we just have to continue to, to adapt to the, the environment we're in. It's interesting. Um, earlier, you talked about the, the word hopeful in the surveys mm. that you conduct. And there's more of that now than there was at the beginning of this COVID crisis. Um, but also the fact that we're, we're learning to deal with this continual volatility. So we're not sort of getting to a point, we're not aspiring to a point where it'll all settle down and we just sort of go back to normal this is the new normal, right? Mm. Um, how is that sense of hopefulness, um, ch- or I guess, are we changing the way we're thinking about things in order to become hopeful? I mean, like, where does the hopefulness come from? Mm. Great, great point. Well, what I've seen in this, you know, those great leaders, and, and it really was modelled um, from our national and state leaders who handled things so well, uh, amidst the uncertainty, there was no playbook on this, you know, no 
country had 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 the advance on on how it was to be managed every country had to suddenly work out how they were going to respond and we saw our, our leaders at all levels be completely open and honest with information they were uh, making those calls early and, and making them clearly communicating them and backing themselves and, you know that that leadership with strength and confidence did instill a bit of confidence in all of us and it's that same attitude that I think we as leaders in our own realms need, you know. So rather than react um, when the issue emerges, we've got to respond and respond proactively and, and I think deliberately. Um, I think this gives us an opportunity not just to resume what we were doing, but to refocus and reprioritize and set out more deliberately into, into this new era to, if you like, reimagine what might be possible rather than just rebuild what we had. Um, because I think... You know, much of what we had pre-COVID, we will never see again. You know, we're not mm. moving to the next, but I think it's to the new. It's it's not a continuation of how things were, but the start of a whole new reality. And with that in mind, we need to understand we're now living in a, a new country, in a sense, a country that we didn't have. That's um, mm. not the February 2020 country anymore. And uh, and so I think that understanding that new reality means that we've got to adapt and and respond and and hopefully. Uh, refocus, uh, reimagine what might be possible in this new realm. So it's an opportunity. Exactly. Sure is. Yeah. So do you have a Dumbo for us? Hmm. A property Dumbo. So a lesson that we can learn from a mistake somebody else, maybe even yourself, has hmm. made? Well, the first is, I think, just to to be so aware of these demographics and the changes, and and probably like we were saying, you know, not just think we know an area because we saw that area growing up or we went there on holidays, and so we know mm. it because areas change so quickly, suburbs change so quickly. You know, it, it, it's it's our experience. We we sort of go to a suburb, we think, wow, the, this the culture of this suburb has changed, the cultural diversity has changed. I thought it was it was more you know Anglo, and now it's this this group or that group have uh, are starting to to shape it in terms of its culinary and and, and richness and and that yeah. creates new demand and, and new opportunities and and I think that's key for us to recognize that our suburbs our cities and therefore the property market is a dynamic one and what we knew is no longer necessarily what it was and it it also reminds us and I guess you know uh, we're, we're going to be dumbos if we don't follow that basic rule of diversifying uh, because if someone for example was fully sold on commercial property in the CBD and yeah. that's where all their investments were they've got a challenging few years because mm. even the tenants they do have are on uh, 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 you know paying less now in this in this new environment yeah. under the under the, the, the opportunities that exist with the government you know not not letting leases be be um, be, be maintained at a at the same uh, lease level so so when we diversify across the different areas geographically and, and across you know, commercial retail and, and of course, um, uh, residential, it does help us get through the storms and, and, and deal with the different realities that uh, these volatile times present. I love that because a lot of people say, oh, you know, why are you fascinated about property so much? And, you know, why do you want to read about it and learn about it? And why do we even do this podcast? Like, why do we what drives us? And I think what you talked about there is it's all about the people side, you know, mm-hmm. understanding how, you know, the country is kind of going to grow and what's going to change and what are we going to, and that for me is what drives property, you know, the mm-hmm. desirability and livability of it. So I think, you know, that's what's fascinating really. Um, not so much, you know, you can make this money here and all that sort of stuff. I think it's more about truly understanding what's driving um, the whole economy and, and property prices. And I think that's the, the thing that a lot of people sometimes miss because, you know, what a property's desirability today could dramatically shift um, within years. You know, if a new tower yeah. goes up or, you know, demand leaves like a mining town, um, you just got to be, you know, really understanding the long-term shifts with demographics and um, consumer yeah. preferences really, isn't it? Exactly right, Chris. A property expert said to me in my early days, two things you need to understand if you're going to make a go of property, and that is people and numbers. You know, And there's a lot of people mm-hmm. in property that understand numbers and they understand yields and, and rates and percentages, <laughs> but you've got to understand people. Uh, because yeah. as you said, people, not just um, populations and demographics, that's that's important, but individuals uh, and, mm. and sentiment and attitudes and fears and hopes, because that also drives those decisions in the property market as well. 
well. And that's not just the residential property, that's, that's retail and and also commercial. So yeah, people and numbers are key to, to success in property for anyone. Well, that's such wise, so such wide, kind of stumbling over my own words here, such wise words there, Mark. Thank you for that. And, you know, I was told that when I first got into property as well, it's not about bricks and mortar, it's about people. And it's so true. And that's why we wanted to talk to you today. So thank you so much for your time. Some great insights into some changes that we are starting to see actually already uh, due to affordability, you know, in terms of a migration away from cities, but also uh, the reassessment or realignment of values uh, in this uh, COVID world. So appreciate your time, Mark. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks, Veronica. It's been a delight. And thanks, Chris. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well... If you're going to be looking at buying property in a regional area, whether you're looking at buying it for investment or whether you're looking at relocating there yourself, one thing that you really do need to be very mindful of when you're moving from an urban area or from a city is to not look at the local prices with your city mentality. Now, I particularly when we were filming the show, used to see this quite a lot. You know, people moving from one city to a regional area and they'd be like, yeah, and you've probably heard it. Oh my God, that's such good value. I can't believe I can get a place with a view for that much money. If only that was in Sydney or Melbourne, I would never be able to afford it, et cetera, et cetera. That sort of thinking can often lead you to actually pay too much money for it because you're actually valuing it as almost as if it was in Sydney rather than as that property in the location in which it actually is. So it's a really important thing to be very, very mindful of to price the property in its local context, not in this sort of rose-coloured glasses uh, mentality where you think, okay, if that was in Sydney, it'd be so much more, so therefore it's a bargain. So uh, that's a big trap for people that are moving from urban expensive areas into other areas because of affordability. Yeah, I think it's so true. Um, and then how the agents like to deal, how fast, how do you make offers? You know, do you, you know, the whole way of transacting is potentially completely different um, in those areas. And, you know, I think it's rushing that decision. You see a lot of holiday makers, you know, when you're kind of cruising the main street, you pop look in the real estate windows and think, wow, look what I can buy for your money. And, you know, I've seen clients over the years so many times where they've actually gone and bought a property in, say, Marimbula or something like that because <laughs> they're on holidays and um, there was no other real justification behind it. So, you know, have they bought a great property? Probably not because they haven't really spent a lot of time researching it and, B, like you say, they're potentially overpaid because it looks cheap based on capital cities. So that's a really good um, elephant rider. Yeah, and, look, the, the timing is true too because trans- properties do typically transact over a longer period of time in regional areas and not always, yep. but yes, you're absolutely right that, you know, city siders, Sydney siders particularly, and uh, and I'm sure Melbourneians are pretty similar in that they're used to having to jump quickly on a good property. Yep. And so they would actually make an offer very, very quickly and quite often not realising that that property might have been sitting on the market for a long time. And in that area, there's not as many buyers. And so you don't actually have to act quite so quickly. The other thing too is that locals, you know, there's a lot of local knowledge that needs to be gained before you buy a property and um, there's a bit of a pub test, you know, you can go to the local pub sometimes and just sort of chat to chat to some of the locals and, and get a sense of, you know, different areas and, and different problems uh, that or, or reasons that locals might uh, give a wide berth to certain parts of the area, for instance. Yeah, for sure. And you will never know that coming from the city. You would just absolutely have no idea. You buy yourself a property that ultimately one day you might want to sell and nobody wants to buy. I think it's so true around days on market. Like you can figure out what properties the market doesn't want by days on market. And, you know, I've seen properties where a client was really keen on this property. It was on a really busy road near a Tarman sort of way and they were really keen to move on it. and I said I've just done a quick RP data report on it and sort of been on the market for 190 days or something and wow. yeah. um, they were they were flabbergasted because the agent's like oh it's really hot we've got lots of interest and I'm like well you haven't got much interest mate it's been on the market for you know six months so that kind of really changed their view on it just understanding that and it had gone through three different agents so a good tip for them was then just calling those other two agents and saying like what happened like why why didn't you sell it? And generally they've been burnt because they went through the whole process and didn't get paid for it. And so sometimes they'll tell you information that, uh, yeah, you need to know. Yes. 
Please join us for our next episode. We interview Domain's managing editor, Alice Stoltz, and we're really interested to find out all about whether Australians are gearing up for a big sea change or tree change in the wake of COVID. Search data has been indicating some very interesting patterns. So tune in, find out where the next hotspots, dare I say it, may be. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team would love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.